Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. And today is the day we're sharing one of the most important aspects to consider when it comes to the long-term health of your diet. Whether you are choosing vegan, gluten-free, omnivore, paleo, pescatarian, or any of the other options out there, this is something to consider. We'll be covering what blood sugar is and how it affects the body, symptoms you may be experiencing that are associated with blood sugar imbalances, glycemic index versus glycemic load, long-term implications of blood sugar dysregulation, surprising foods that affect your blood sugar, and why you should aim to eat in a way that balances blood sugar for life. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Today is the Day podcast. I'm Megan Telbner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. And joining me as always is Josh Gatalis. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. When I first started teaching cooking classes, I would develop my classes based on the questions that were being asked most commonly by my class guests. Time and again, it was about managing fatigue, energy crashes in the day, and poor sleep. And so I created a class that I thought would be a home run to address these concerns. I called it Eating to Balance Blood Sugar. Guess what happened, Josh? What happened, Megan? No one signed up. It was totally crickets. Not even people diagnosed with blood sugar issues like hypoglycemia, prediabetics, or diabetes. So I changed the name. I called it Eating for Awesome Energy, and suddenly I couldn't offer this class often enough. The content didn't change. Now, that particular class, by the way, is a popular offering amongst the Academy of Culinary Nutrition Certified Instructors who teach their own classes around the world. I'm going to talk more about that at the end of the show. Let's talk blood sugar. Discussing blood sugar balance isn't a sexy topic, but it's an important one. This element of a truly balanced diet affects our energy levels, quality of sleep, hormone balance, mood, weight, and ultimately how we perceive and process the world around us. It's basically a quality of life factor that we need to consider. So let's dive in. A good place to start with this topic is just understanding what blood sugar is and how it cycles throughout the day. So firstly, we want to have a certain amount of sugar in our blood. That's how our cells get our energy. That's how our brain gets energy. That's how we function and we get our fuel from. But it's going to go up and down based on the day's events, based on when we eat. So we want to have a blood sugar level within a pretty tight range. When we eat a meal, that food goes into our stomach. We start to digest and break it down. Then it ends up in our small intestine. And that's when we start to absorb the different nutrients and macronutrients and calories from the food. So sugar would be one of those things. They go in, it goes into our bloodstream. And as a response, our pancreas releases the hormone insulin. Insulin helps to get that sugar into our cells. It's like, you know, coming up to a factory and one of the people in the truck or the company go to the front door reception and says, hey, our truck's out back. Can you let them in? They've got the, the mother load. And then they open the back door and that's the blood sugar that comes into the factory. So the sugar comes into our cell. 
Insulin also has a role, as we'll get into a little bit more later, of storing that sugar if we can't get it all into the cell. It helps to pack it away in case we need it for a rainy day. So for example, if we ate more sugar than should be allowed into our cells. Exactly. So after that meal, our blood sugar increases. We get it into the cell or we store it away. And then the blood sugar comes back down. So we're kind of on this like up and down road throughout the day. And when we come down, that's when we might feel hungry. That's when we feel might feel a little bit more fatigue. But what's interesting is that there's a proportional release of insulin in response to how much sugar or how many calories we've consumed in that meal. So if we have consumed a lot of carbohydrates, then there's a proportional release. And as much as that blood sugar goes up, we also go down pretty far as well. So we will eat a deliciously high refined carbohydrate meal like bagels and pasta and crackers and Cheerios and all these snacky carbohydrate things that often are a key craving, our blood contains more sugar than it needs to. So insulin levels rise, tries to get that sugar into the cells to basically save us from going into hyperglycemic shock. Which would be the extreme end. Which would be the extreme end. So insulin's working all of these metabolic processes are in place to basically try and get this sugar out of our blood into where it can be used. Right. And if we're sitting in chairs all day long and not really moving much, those cells don't need a lot of this sugar. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Do any of us sit in chairs all day staring at computer screens? Is that not how we were programmed to live and eat? So, right. So then what happens is that the sugar needs to go somewhere and some will go into the cells and some then get stored in various ways on the body. Exactly. Some will get stored as glycogen in the muscle, some in the liver, but we only have a certain amount of storage space there. So the rest gets stored as fat. And so before we get into more of the nitty gritty of the glycemic index and what all this means and how we know what foods to eat, let's just have a look at some of the symptoms of a typical crash and feel free to make your own checklist and be like, yep, 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 yep. Got it. Need it. Got it. So some of the symptoms include intense cravings for sweets. And what's interesting about these symptoms that I'm about to reveal, often they're, you know, it's a glycemic crash or a blood sugar crash because When you do eat something sweet, you almost immediately feel better. The challenge is that you then are on this perpetual cycle. So we have intense cravings for sweets, mood swings, depression, anxiety, weight gain, specifically around the midsection. So if you feel like you're working out a ton and you can't get rid of that spare tire, that can be an indication. Poor concentration, hyperreactivity or hyperactivity, poor memory, desires for binge eating, sudden drops in energy, brain fog, insomnia, irritability, constant worrying, fits of anger, fatigue after eating, nervousness, shakiness or lightheaded, uh, waking up suddenly in the night for no apparent reason, night sweats. I feel like this is a long list of the most common concerns and challenges of people living in 2020. Absolutely. And what's interesting is a lot of those that you just listed off are neurological in nature. Right. And the brain weighs 2% of our body weight, but takes up 20% of all of our circulating glucose. So it's a big user of this blood sugar pool. And though this might be a little controversial to say, I can't, I don't even want to think about 
the number of people and children being medicated for these symptoms when there could be such a simple solution before they get to extremes, the early days, the early days of these symptoms. And we're going to get into those simple solutions. But I remember back in the day, Megan, when I would go on this dysglycemic roller coaster. So just to define, hyperglycemia is when you have too much blood sugar, hypoglycemia is when you're low blood sugar, and you can flip-flop back and forth from this, and that's what we call dysglycemia. So you know, back in the day, I call my first life, when I would eat a lot of processed foods and carbohydrates, I was on this roller coaster. I would feel good and then not good and then good and then not good. I would look for sweets. I would just never really feel 100% until I understood this process and how it actually worked and how it actually worked in the body. So understanding is so important. Let's get into the bits and bobs, if you will, how we can begin to understand how our day-to-day food and lifestyle choices will put us on this roller coaster. And by the way, if you want to learn more or read a little bit more into it or get a different take on it or a different explanation, check out page 140 in my first book, Undiet, where I do talk about the different hormones and the hormonal cascade that results from this blood sugar imbalance. The glycemic index ranks carbohydrates on a scale starting at zero and puts 100 as the benchmark where white flour is 100 on the scale. And the measurement is relating to the extent to which the food raises the blood sugar levels after eating. Now, foods with a high glycemic index or a high GI are those that are rapidly digested and absorbed and result in marked fluctuations in blood sugar levels. So that's where white flour is a prime example or white sugar because they are highly processed without any fat, protein, or fiber to slow down that digestion and assimilation process. And so they will have a rapid spike or cause a rapid spike in that blood sugar levels. High glycemic foods tend to be things like very sweet fruits, like say watermelon or bananas. And we're going to talk a little bit later about surprising foods on this glycemic index because they're not all as intuitive as it may seem. Another common one is refined and processed grains, white rice, white bread, basically all grains will have an effect on blood sugar level. And Uh, just to interrupt you for a moment, what is happening with a refined grain just quickly? Well, what's happened with a refined, so a whole grain, let's talk about a whole grain. A whole grain has various components to it. It has a fiber, which is the outer husk. It has the endosperm, which is the starchy component. And it has the germ, which is where, say, the vitamin E and some of the essential fats might be stored in that grain. So what they do when they refine a grain is they remove the outer husk, that fiber component. They remove the germ, which is what contains those volatile compounds that will go rancid more quickly. And what remains is the starchy, sugary component of the endosperm. That's why refined grains are so delicious. And in that fiber that's removed, it has soluble and insoluble fiber that slows down digestion. So what Megan's saying is that a white grain, say like a a white bread made of wheat flour, is going to have a much higher glycemic index than a whole grain. A whole grain. And if you guys are following my bread adventure, I'm still working on a no grain sourdough bread. So other things that will affect blood sugar then are foods that are low in protein fat, and or fiber, and also the obvious sugary foods, pastries, refined sugars, candy, cake, all of those things. 
Spikes in blood sugar levels also, as Josh mentioned, will result in those spikes in insulin levels, which can lead to metabolic risks down the road. Do you want to talk a little bit about that sort of hormonal cascade that happens? Absolutely. Well, when you have those blood sugar drops, when you're at the bottom of the roller coaster, your body registers that as a possible emergency because we don't want our blood sugar to fall too low. Otherwise, there's going to be problems in certain organ systems. So one of the ways it responds is it releases stress hormones from the adrenal glands like adrenaline and cortisol to increase blood sugar artificially, you could say, uh, because you have not gotten it from your food because you've had that hypoglycemic response. And it'll release these hormones and those hormones help to drive that sugar into the cell and get the blood sugar up, causing another rise in blood sugar that's obviously not for food, but from this hormonal response. And that has its consequences. The other thing that we see with high insulin is an increase in inflammation. And this is one of the reasons which we'll get into in a little bit. Before we get too far into this, I just want to interject for a moment because it's not as simple as just being like, okay, well then I won't eat any high glycemic foods and I'll be totally fine. Because we can still enjoy, say, a slice of watermelon on a hot summer's day. So we're going to get into the difference between glycemic index and glycemic load, which is a really important differentiation. But I think while we're talking about this hormonal impact, we should really get into these long-term health implications of this instability of blood sugar. Well, I think one of the most common ones and sort of an end stage to this process happening over years is type 2 diabetes, where someone is consuming so many carbs for so many years and their pancreas is pumping out massive amounts of insulin to drive that sugar into the cell. And the cell says, stop bothering me. It's like that solicitor that's at your door every day knocking and it starts to close up the doors and lock those doors and says, insulin, sugar, leave me alone. It's, it's enough already. So when someone is told by their doctor they're pre-diabetic, this is an oper a wonderful opportunity. It's like a big warning sign. Exactly. And that's when what we call insulin resistance, where that cell is resisting the, the message of the insulin. And then the blood sugar remains high in the bloodstream we can't get it into the cell. And what happens with type 2 diabetics? They're prescribed insulin, which is more insulin, to get more solicitors to knock on that door and just really, really bother them. So instead of them just knocking on the door, you now have someone at every door, every window, at the walls of your home just trying to get in. And that increases the desensitization of your cells. So it just keeps putting up thicker blinds, thicker walls, anything to try and keep that out. Exactly. And what happens also with this is the blood sugar remains high for a long time, which then can lead to more serious diseases. Now, why does that lead to more serious diseases? Well, blood sugar or sugar in the blood is like having little tiny shards of glass floating around your blood. And when it's too high, it can go and damage proteins. So I think most of us have maybe seen the crust on a toast or caramelization with onions. And what's happening you, there- You mean the most delicious parts? Yes, exactly. And those most delicious parts is when the sugars and the proteins mix and it's called glycation. 
So that not only happens in food outside of the body, but that also happens inside the body. And there's a blood marker called hemoglobin A1C that actually looks at that. So we've got this protein in our blood called hemoglobin. We all get it tested. But there's this other marker called hemoglobin A1C, which is also known as glycated hemoglobin. And that's showing how much of the sugar is damaging the proteins in that hemoglobin. Now, we can't have a number of zero. So we all have some damage, which is fine. We want to stay within the range. But when it gets too high, it's telling us that this is going to move towards a pathological state and cause big problems. And that's why people with type 2 diabetes get neuropathies and gastroparesis where their digestive tract shuts down and many other issues like issues with their eyes and whatnot. So when your body has this extreme insulin output and then a crash, what happens is that our nervous system starts to respond and we have outputs of adrenaline first and foremost. So adrenaline is the stress hormone intended for us to deal with short-term acute stress like suddenly needing to run from a bear. What happens, however, is that we, when we abuse this hormonal output and have persistent adrenaline spikes and crashes with blood sugar spikes and crashes, our body begins to secrete more cortisol. And cortisol is the stress hormone intended for us to deal with long-term chronic stress or help us recover from an injury or if we're dealing with, say, the sickness of a loved one. But what happens with long-term elevated levels of adrenaline and cortisol, we start to see conditions of degeneration develop in the body. And that's how this blood sugar issue can then contribute to increased rates or risk of cardiovascular disease, increase in inflammatory conditions. And we're essentially frying our nervous system, which will negatively impact our brain function, mood stabilization, and ultimately can result in burnout or often called adrenal fatigue. It can affect the complete hormonal cascade in the body and thereby contributing to things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, hormonal imbalances that can contribute to thyroid dysfunction, and the cascade goes on and on. And ultimately, this can also become a precursor or contributing factor to the increased risk of cancer. Now, you mentioned inflammation, which plays a role in pretty much everything you talked about. And the way insulin increases inflammation is we have fats in our diet that then get converted to pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory compounds. And when there's high insulin in the body, it pushes the pathway that's pro-inflammatory downstream. We know that cancer, for example, we know that cancer, for example, is more probable to occur when we have higher amounts of these pro-inflammatory what are called prostaglandins that are produced in the body. So those can actually improve, increase, and speed up the replication of cancer cells. Let's take a moment here and meet one of our inspiring culinary nutrition expert graduates. Kathleen Oswald came into the program already practicing as a dietitian and working with her husband, a champion triathlete. As she'll explain, she knew there was more she could be offering her clients and the culinary nutrition expert program filled that gap that she and her clients needed. Hi, my name is Kathleen Oswald. I graduated from the Academy of Culinary Nutrition in 2019. I currently live in Charleston, South Carolina, but I'm originally from sunny California. I'm a registered dietitian in private practice who helps triathletes find ways to fuel themselves with a predominantly plant-based diet. 
The course really expanded my knowledge about food and meal prepping and planning, and it gave me insight on how I could create my own nutritious and tasty recipes. I'm currently finalizing the details of a project that I'm working on where I'll be in charge of nourishing triathletes while they spend their days training at triathlon camp. I know what I learned in class will really just give me that extra edge that I need. Eventually, my dream is to create my own cookbook geared towards triathletes that focuses on boosting health, endurance, and performance through eating more plants. I just want to say thank you to the entire crew for all the support, the education, and constructive feedback so I could become and call myself a culinary expert. Kathleen and her husband work with athletes to help them reach peak performance, and culinary nutrition principles are part of that equation. Learn more about what they're doing at eatlovetriathlon.com. We have links to their work over on culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just select this episode to learn more. We have loads of graduates who join the program after already having some health-related training, whether it be as a nurse, physician, nutritionist, dietitian, and also naturopaths. As our focus is food-based learning, we offer practical application that many health professionals are seeking to round out their work. Of course, there are no prerequisites for our program and you can join without any prior training at all. If you are curious to learn more about whether the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program is right for you, be sure to save your seat in our upcoming program information session at culinarynutrition.com forward slash info session. We have one session a month and there are replays available if you can't join us live. Now let's return to our conversation. I think we have driven home the fundamental importance and why blood sugar stabilization is so important no matter what diet of choice is right for you or what goes along with your values and philosophies. So let's now, as we like to do, offer that solution. And it's not necessarily, as I said earlier, that you have to avoid eating every single food that registers on the glycemic index, but there's something called the glycemic load. Do you want to explain sort of the difference between the index versus the load or GI versus GL? They're both important in their own right, and we have to appreciate the limitations and the benefits of each one. But glycemic load is not just looking, well, it doesn't look at the speed at which foods enter the bloodstream. It looks at the quantity. And I'll use a ridiculous example to help you guys understand this. If I ate a whole bowl of jelly beans, I'd be in big trouble. You know, I'd have massive blood sugar spike. It just be, I'd also be very upset with you. <laughs> <laughs> It'd just be way too much for my body to handle. Now, whether I'm having the whole bowl or a single jelly bean, they all have the exact same glycemic index. But if I have a single little jelly bean, it's not going to affect my blood sugar too much because the load isn't that much. And I'd only be a little bit upset with <laughs> So again, to my blood sugar super quick, but it's not a big load. It's not a lot in quantity. So the load looks at the quantity. The index looks at the speed. Let's give a more practical example. Quinoa. Quinoa. You know, a popular health food. A lot of people make quinoa salads or quinoa bowls. There was a period in our life together where Josh would eat a bowl of quinoa. Like as a meal, you drizzle some flax oil on it, 
sprinkle some seeds in it so and you good. were just happy eating a bowl of quinoa. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Did but it. what I didn't realize at the time right? was although quinoa has a relatively low glycemic index, meaning that it doesn't get into my bloodstream quickly, it can still be a lot of a load if I have a whole bowl of it. So that's a lot of carbohydrates. The load looks at the carbohydrate content. So if I have a massive bowl of quinoa, although it's not going into my bloodstream super fast, all of that is going to end up in my bloodstream at some point, which means that I'm going to have hormonal mechanisms in place to deal with that blood sugar somehow at some point. Right. And we did a, I, we spoke about this, I believe in our episode on what the heck should I eat, where I wore for two weeks, a blood glucose monitor and you had one too, and we eat similar foods. And we also saw that when I had a meal high in carbohydrates, my blood glucose levels took a dramatically longer time to restabilize than yours did. And that goes back to our different metabolic types, which we talk about in the weight loss episode as well. And we are going to get into how different bodies respond. So there is something to that glycemic index and the glycemic load, and you need to take the full picture of the meal and the human eating it into consideration. For sure. So I think the bottom line is you and, and your metabolic type me, can handle Megan. Uh, less of a glycemic load than I can. Yes. I'm not going to have as much of a drastic insulin response or hormonal response right. to the, those carbohydrates. And when you were in the bowl of quinoa days, when we were in our early days of, of courtship and, and I was on a predominantly plant-based diet and we would make these massive bowls of oatmeal. And we were layering other stuff into them. We were putting nuts and seeds and coconut oil, and they were like these insane, like 2,500 calorie breakfasts. To decrease the glycemic to, index, right? Like that's what we were focusing that's on. That's what we were focused on. But still, that amount for me of carbohydrate in the morning, I was hungry all day. Like I felt the impact of that, whereas mm -hmm. you were fine and just, you know, just kept eating massive meals consistently because that's what you do. <laughs> Let me give one more example of the glycemic index versus glycemic load So, uh, and what it means because I used an, an example of low glycemic index food, but a high glycemic load. So let's do the opposite. If I think of a high glycemic index food. Watermelon. Like watermelon. Yeah, great one, Meg. Thanks, Josh. But I'm not eating a whole watermelon in one sitting. Right. So although it's a high glycemic index, it's not a massive load. No, although our toddler would happily eat an entire sure watermelon would. in one sitting. And we're going to get to the kid thing, because when you talked about the one jelly bean versus the bowl of jelly beans, the immediate image I had was kids with those bags of candy from the candy store, just devouring it or those massive lollipops and what that is doing in their little bodies. So something to keep in mind is that you can take a high glycemic index food, say a rice cake, which is roughly 100, I think, on most indexes. But then you put onto that rice cake, say, a thick layer of ghee or coconut oil, and then maybe a scrambled egg or a piece of cheese or some cashew cheese. And so you're adding in that fat, fiber, and or protein that will help bring down the index of that food. So it will have a less dramatic impact on your blood sugar levels. In theory, again, different people react in different ways to the exact same foods based on their metabolic type. Something to remember though, is that just because a food or snack is rated as having a low glycemic index, 
It's similar to a food being given the title of gluten-free that doesn't automatically make it healthy. And what you can often find if you go and Google glycemic indexes of foods is sometimes they have candy bars on them, like a Mars bar or an O'Henry bar. And sometimes those snack foods will have lower glycemic indexes because they have, say, like peanuts on them, or they are a chocolate that has a fat content but may not necessarily be a good type of chocolate. So let's talk about surprising foods. And I know you want to share something about dark chocolate. Yeah, that's a good place to start coming off your discussion about chocolate bars, that dark chocolate is quite surprising because it actually has a really low glycemic index, like around 22. Why is that the case? Because it's mostly fat, especially if you're doing 80, 90% dark chocolate. That fat takes a long time to actually get in the bloodstream and the proportion that's sugar in that dark chocolate isn't that much. So you guys are gonna be super happy with me. You're gonna be stoked about this piece of information because now you know dark chocolate is not gonna spike your blood sugar too much. Just don't eat the whole chocolate bar because then you're having a large glycemic load. One square. One to two square. It's also really good for the brain and mood. Yes, Josh is a big dark chocolate fan. I cut out chocolate a long time ago. You can listen to my our sleep episode to hear why and how that's impacted my life. But how does that differ then to like a milk chocolate? So if like, you know, a commercial candy bar rates low on the glycemic index, why is that not the same? So a commercial chocolate bar will probably have a higher glycemic index than dark chocolate, but it might still be low because there's a lot of fat content. As we start to get less and less fat in that chocolate bar, so less percentage of the cocoa mass and then more and more of the sugars, and you know if there's milk in it, then we have lactose, then we start to get higher glycemic index snacks and treats. I'd like to offer the guidance that like all you have to do is eliminate sweet foods and then you're set. But there's some surprises in here. For example, berries. Now, berries are a really great fruit to snack on. They taste sweet, but they are low on the glycemic index. Another one, peaches. Now, peaches are a higher sugar content fruit, but they rate lower. Mm -hmm. So we can't just rely on our taste buds. Now, on the opposite side, millet, which really isn't that sweet at all. It's a grain that gets quite sticky is very high on the glycemic index chart. But then we have oatmeal. Now, an instant oatmeal packet, not just because of the sugar and the other stuff that's in it, but instant oatmeal or quick cook oats or oats that have been processed in some way have a significantly higher glycemic index than steel cut or whole rolled oats. So that just goes to show how that processing in a food can affect how it affects our blood sugar levels. Now, sometimes there's little nuances between the type of food it is. So yams are actually quite low on the glycemic index, but sweet potatoes are actually quite high. So that gets mixed up quite a bit. And we have to look at the label or ask the grocer what that actually is, because sometimes they're used interchangeably. So what about the people that claim that the that having their morning coffee is what gets them out of bed in the morning. It's an essential. How is that affecting blood sugar levels? Well, Megan, you actually just reminded me of a song. I'm going to sing it. And if you know the words, you may join in. But it was from a commercial from when I was a youngster. Oh, I thought you were going to bring, I think I thought you were bringing in a jingle. And I was just like going through our Rolodex of our personally composed jingles. And I'm like, we don't have one about coffee. Yeah, this isn't our coffee. jingle. This isn't okay. our original material. This is this is actually from a commercial many years ago. And it goes like this. Drugs, drugs, drugs. 
which are good, which are bad. Drugs, drugs, drugs. Ask your mom, ask your dad. You know what? I have another jingle that could work Mm -hmm. from a a smoking cessation cessation (laughs) campaign that my father did with his ad agency. We get to hear you sing solo? Yeah. Break free. Go your own way. Break free. Oh. Something like a a choice for a new generation or something like that. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, so so drugs, which caffeine is one and the most common way of consuming it is in coffee, could be good or bad. But for the most part, it's not so good for most people because caffeine stimulates that fight or flight response that Megan was mentioning earlier, where we release the cortisol and adrenaline and everything gets that blood sugar up. So when you're running on empty and you're tired and you have a coffee, you haven't had more calories. You haven't had good food to get your energy up, but all of a sudden you have more energy. And it's because it uses those stress hormones to artificially fool the body into thinking uh, sort of like it just ate, but to increase blood sugar. And it also blocks certain kind of fatigue receptors in the brain and nervous system. And to compound that, if you're putting sugar in your coffee, then you're kind of trying to double whammy it and not just get the effect of the caffeine, but to get that blood sugar spike. So Josh. Megan. Does adding butter to your coffee suddenly make it a health food? I wouldn't go that far, (laughs) but it does give you some slow burning calories. Mm -hmm. So it can offset some of the stimulation of the caffeine. It can. There is a time and a place for that. Now, the other drug we're talking about is alcohol, right? So alcohol has calories in it. How many calories per gram? Seven calories per gram. Yeah. And especially when people are drinking sugary alcoholic drinks that 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 have had sugar added to them to make them sweeter and more tasty, then you're really kind of ramping up blood sugar. Alcohol gets absorbed through the stomach lining very quickly. If anyone's ever drank alcohol, they understand this. Gets into the blood sugar and can really put you on that roller coaster. It's pretty well known that alcoholics are going to have and can have serious blood sugar issues. Yes. And often part of resolving addictions to alcohol also requires resolving addictions to sugar. Exactly. The two go hand in hand very often. Let's address now what we can then look out for in meals and snacks and eating habits to help nip this in the bud. And I want to start by talking about our life a little bit and our child, because we aim to regulate his blood sugar at all times. That's a key focus we look at with meals. And this applies to people of all sizes, whether they're 18 months old, two and a half years old, five years old, 10, 16, 20, let's, you know, up until however old you are who are listening. Stabilizing that blood sugar is a practice that happens every day, all day, throughout the day. And something we notice so acutely, and we see it in kids all the time, and I often wonder how often sort of the meltdowns and tantrums are actually just dramatic blood sugar crashes. And kids don't always know how to say that they're hungry or that they're thirsty or that they don't feel satiated after a meal. And we notice this when we get home from work and we're making dinner. And if we 
go past 6 p.m. If we do not feed our son by 6 p.m., it's it's not, I wouldn't call it a disaster, but it's significantly more difficult because hyperactivity kicks in. He doesn't want to sit and then he doesn't want to eat. And it becomes this cycle that often ends in tears until we can just get him to eat something and then he'll calm down pretty quickly. And so regulating that blood sugar, whether it means through more frequent meals and snacks and really paying attention to the clock because you want to get that feeding in, again, all ages of humans fall into this, that feeding in before there's necessarily that sensation of hunger or that crash happens. So it could be eating every two to three hours for some people and ensuring that there is fiber, fat, and protein to help bring down that overall impact of whatever that meal is that we're having. So if we consider kids' favorite foods or what parents will often resort to when the kids resist the meal at the table, it's things like puffed wheat, Cheerios, white rice, toast, pasta, these all rate in the 100 range on that glycemic index. And what the kid potentially is looking for is that instantaneous spike. And why the cycle can continue is because they're on the roller coaster and they know that with one of these foods, they will feel better right away. When you made that list, Megan, all I heard from those words coming out of your mouth was carbs, carbs, carbs. It is. Right? You know, like there's a lot of snacks, foods that are heavy in carbs. And we got to look elsewhere for things that are maybe a bit higher in fat or protein to really help them sustain that blood sugar balance. And I use the analogy of if you're making a campfire and you put the kindling in, that's what carbs are, right? They burn really hot and really fast and give us a nice bright fire for a moment, but then it burns out quickly. We want to get the proteins and fats in, which is like putting in that big piece of oak that burns really hot, really long. You know, sometimes you wake up in the morning and the fire's still going, right? This, it's still smoldering. So we like to give Finley and we like to eat ourselves. Again, this is at any age, snacks like olives, nut butters, nuts, seeds, hummus. Uh, what else, Megan? Avocados are a really good fat-rich, low glycemic snack. And what we often do, we'll just slice one in half and sprinkle a little bit of salt on it. And we really try and lean towards more savory snacks wherever possible. Mm -hmm. Smoothies are also a really great option because you can put in a little bit of fruit to give it some sweetness, but you can add in a greens powder or a leafy green. You can use berries to sweeten it as well and put in things like hemp seeds or a collagen or your choice of protein powder so that you're really filling it. You've got that fiber, fat, and protein. Oh, and a flax oil is another great thing to add to a smoothie. We'll actually put fish oil in for our son as a great way to sneak that in. For sure. And we use a lot of non-starchy vegetables as well to like dip into the hummus, to dip into the nut butters. Sometimes we give him cheese. Yeah. Uh, soups and stews are another really great way to have a lower load meal because there's a lot of liquid in there, lots of vegetables, preferably non-starchy vegetables. You can put in a lot of beans as a protein or a fish or a chicken or a meat or a tofu or whatever you have. So you're getting that protein component in there and helping lower that. So another really simple way to go about this is to go for grain-free meals altogether. That will automatically give you less to worry about or less to think about, and you will have a more protein and fiber-rich meal. So whether that's whatever your protein of choice is, whether it's a meat, a fish, or a veggie-based protein, and then lots and lots and lots and lots of non-starchy vegetables. So the broccoli, cauliflower, leafy greens, asparagus when it's in season, those kinds of things. And you can 
incorporate in some root vegetables, but just not so heavy on the starchier root vegetables. Squashes are also a good alternative and a good option. And I think just to speak on the paleo thing that you mentioned, and we've also gone into this in a lot more detail. Well, I and- didn't mention paleo. I mentioned grain. Food. Okay, yes. Let's be, let's be clear here. <laughs> but I think what I was going to get at is that the paleo diet has become so popular and become like the 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 diet of the day because by default, it often balances people's blood sugar and they just feel better from it. Right. So is the benefit coming from the higher protein intake or is it simply the fact that on a paleo diet, also on a keto diet, you are stabilizing that blood sugar? And that's at the core of, I think, a lot of the benefit of it is that you are directly reversing the metabolic process in your body that that can contribute to anxiety and depression and mood instabilization and hyperactivity or hyperreactivity and all those that that long list of common symptoms we discussed at the top of the show. Now it could take a little bit of time for your body to respond to these changes. So if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, I'm gonna do everything, I'm gonna go gung-ho, go for it. But understand that your cells take a little bit of time to adjust. So they're going to be looking for that high blood sugar for a little bit until there's a a reset or a recalibration. Adrenaline is an addictive hormone in the body. And a lot of people thrive on it and don't know how to function without it. Those are the people you know who have to constantly be in action and in activity. And maybe they're constantly on their phones and they consider that their downtime. And it can be highly addictive, just like caffeine is highly addictive. And so when you break that cycle, there is a little bit of an uncomfortable withdrawal process. I actually offer a seven-day no sugar challenge. And that is part of it, getting rid of that sugar and that processed, refined spike that we're so used to from those foods, getting rid of it require it's like a it's it's hard to explain, but it's almost like an incessant feeling of low grade fatigue, slight hunger, potentially slight shakiness. It can almost feel like a low grade flu. Mm-hmm. Now addiction is defined as something that when you remove it, you have withdrawal symptoms. So I'm not really talking about so much the psychological part. And we, you know, that's also something we need to recognize. But your body actually does become addicted to these foods the way we described how that insulin response happens and how the insulin resistance occurs. And then you've, you have to try to work against that and retune and recalibrate that body to become used to it. And sometimes you have to go a bit slower. Sometimes you could do it a bit faster. It really depends on who you are and what your physiology is and what your situation is. What you want to keep in mind as you're transitioning to this is that you may need a little extra rest You'll probably want a little extra hydration. And you'll probably, most of all, really need to focus on the meal planning so that you have those snacks ready to go that are low glycemic, that will keep your blood sugar stable. And you really pay attention to eating on a schedule so that you avoid that crash that will make doing this significantly harder when those sweet cravings kick in. As with everything we talk about, it's all about prevention. And oftentimes prevention is addressed in sort of a long-term type of way, like I want to prevent cardiovascular disease or diabetes or cancer, but it also happens in the short term on a day-to-day basis. If you can balance your blood sugar in the morning, throughout the day, then you prevent those crashes 
where all of your self-control, you know, goes out the door and then you need to reach for those sugary snacks. You, you prevent that, that need for the willpower. Well, you wrap that up just perfectly. So thank you all once again for tuning in with an open mind. That is all we can ever ask of you as we recognize that often the information we share might contradict some of your long-term held beliefs or long-held habits. Take what you can today and incorporate it into your life. And then you know what? We're sticking around. So come back and listen again when you're ready to take on more. If you're looking for more guidance towards living a low GI, blood, and mood-stable life, please head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast and choose this episode for access to additional resources. And remember that eating for awesome energy class I mentioned at the top of the show? Well, we now have a module in the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program called Fueling with Whole Foods. That's the new name for it, where we dive deeper into the subject. And of course, we are very proud to celebrate the 400 plus Academy of Culinary Nutrition certified instructors who've gone through our program and are now teaching Eating for Awesome Energy and loads more classes in their communities. If you're curious about how you might join our extended team as an instructor, head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash instructor to learn more. Your first step is joining us in September for the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program and registration is now open. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. If you know someone that has blood sugar dysregulation and needs some assistance with this, share it with them. We look forward to connecting with you again next time. Have a great day.